We are in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 together. I'm working from the NIV this morning. Now, chapter 7 is a long one. It's 60 verses. Uh, We're not going to read the entire chapter here, okay? Um, I I hope that you would do so later. It's very important material. Um, There, Stephen gives us the story of Abraham, the story of the patriarchs, the story of Joseph, Moses, Israel in the wilderness. He talks about David, Solomon, the tabernacle, and the temple. There's all this wonderful stuff that he talks about there. So I think it's important for you guys to go back and read this chapter later on and see what Stephen says about those stories. And then also, if you're not familiar with those stories, this is a great opportunity to dive back into the Old Testament and look at the broader story going on there with those Abraham, Moses, Etc. So in most of your Bibles, there'll be some footnotes in this section of Acts chapter 7 that will tell you the corresponding Old Testament texts that are being alluded to there. So there's your way to find those in the Old Testament and read them. Uh, We won't read the entire chapter, but we'll get a lot of it. And what I'll do in this sermon is give us the sense of it. Okay, I'll give us the main point and how it helps us now. So that's what we'll do. We'll get enough of it, I'm sure. This is called The Present and Active God. We'll read the text in a few moments, but let's pray. God, thank you for the privilege this morning of placing ourselves under the authority of your word. We thank you that your word is an evidence of your great love for us and your care for us and your concern for us. And it is evidence of your presence in our lives. In it, we are reminded you are a present act of God who loves us, who is infinitely and intimately concerned about our lives, all our comings and our goings, our joys, our celebrations, our difficulties and our fears. You know them all. You love us and you're present in them. Help us to glean that this morning, Lord. Please, Lord, um, give us ears to hear, hearts that are attentive and responsive, and please help me to teach and preach in a way that's humble and faithful and brings glory to Jesus, please anoint me by your spirit to do so. We ask it together in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, I think if uh, we were to be honest, and on occasion we are, we would say that sometimes life feels like God isn't doing anything that you would like him to be doing in your life. And in fact, sometimes it seems that he isn't anywhere to be found when we feel like we need him most. Does life ever feel that way to you? Or is it just me? On occasion, it does. And life has been feeling that way lately, like God isn't doing what you expect him to do and doesn't seem to be present in what you expect him to be present in. Life has felt that way lately for the elders of this church and some of the leaders of this church. We've been informing you guys about our building situation here, right? That we were up to renew a five-year lease, had the option to renew a five-year lease on this building, and that our current lease ends on August 31st. So we've uh, been talking a lot about the difficulty of that. Our landlord was asking for a 43% raise in our uh, monthly lease, which is untenable for us. It's far beyond our budget and what we're able to bear. 
So we've really been seeking the Lord uh, for every available option. We've been praying tons. We've had you guys praying on Sundays. The bulk of our Wednesday morning prayer meetings have been devoted to it. We've been praying as a staff, as a team. We've been involving people in the body. And it's been, uh, it's been really difficult. And so we've just been asking the Lord, are there other options? Is it our time to make sort of an exodus from this building and find a more permanent home? What, Lord, are you leading us to do? So we just have, as leaders of the church, started knocking on every door and exploring every single option. We've been, some of us, working on this thing full time for the last few months. And at every turn, we've had closed doors. At every turn, we've heard no's. Um, We've made two different offers on this building that were both rejected. Actually, three. We also made an offer to buy it. That was rejected. We made an offer last week on another building to actually buy it here in Carpinteria. The answer was no to that. We've tried to acquire land here in Carpinteria and develop it. It's been no after no. We tried to develop a relationship with a high school and meet there where we do Easter, and the school superintendent told us absolutely not. Uh, we were developing a relationship with a local business. I can tell you now it was Procore, and they have a space, an event space up in the... Um, industrial park and they were talking about partnering with us to use it on Sundays and they could use it they could use it during the week and we could share costs we're pretty far down the road had an agreement written up and then they said no to that we tried, tried to talk with girls inc they said no we talked about partnership with another local church they said no we even approached I personally approached the leadership in the Mormon church to see if we could use their building because they have a great building up at the top of Linden across from St. Joe's and they said no and now we can't even get the owners of this building to talk to us. So it's been an incredibly difficult situation. And what it feels like, you know, sometimes you you feel like God is leading you. And sometimes you feel like Israel where God said, you'll hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. But what it's felt like to us is kind of like a rat in a maze. You know, a rat in a maze, like you can watch the rat in the maze and the rat goes and turns a corner and up oh, wrong one. And he comes back and turns another corner up oh, wrong one. And he goes this way up oh, dead end. He's just kind of feeling his way through. And then it's a process of elimination. Eventually the rat is going to find his way out of the maze. And then the guy watching is like, Ooh, smart little rat. <laughs> but we have felt like those rats in a maze just hitting dead end after dead end. And it feels to us Like God isn't doing what we would expect him to do, and he doesn't even seem that present in the process. But the scriptures remind us that our feelings and our perceptions are not ultimate. They are not the final word. If we're going to be honest, it feels that way. But the Bible confronts our feelings. And Holy Scripture tells us that it is not so that God is not present and not working. The Bible teaches us that God is always present and active in our lives. Perhaps especially when it doesn't feel that way when we read some of the Scripture. God is always present and active, working in our lives. And our text helps us understand that today. Last week in chapter 6, we met a man named Stephen. You guys remember Stephen? We thought he was an awesome dude. He was full of the Holy Ghost. He was full of faith. He was full of wisdom. He was full of power. And he was full of grace. 
which is amazing when you consider all the stuff we are often full of. And you'd think that life would be good for Stephen. He's full of all that good stuff. He was chosen by his peers uh, for a place of service in the church. He was serving his church in a profound way. He was working miracles by the power of the Spirit and for the glory of Jesus. He was a quality guy. You would think that life would be really good for Stephen. But what we saw in our text last week and the continued narrative of this week is that Stephen ran into opposition. Right? There were those who were opposed to Stephen and his perspective and his work. Stephen ran into opposition. I would submit to you the reason that Stephen ran into opposition was because Stephen looked too much like Jesus. Full of the Spirit, right? full of faith, full of wisdom, full of grace, full of power. Stephen looked too much like Jesus. Now, it wasn't very long before this that they killed Jesus in Jerusalem. And anytime someone in this world begins to look, act, feel, think, and behave too much like Jesus, there's always going to be opposition. You remember last week Paul told Timothy, indeed, all those who desire to live godly lives will experience persecution or opposition. So he's experiencing this opposition. Now in chapter 7, we find him before the Sanhedrin, which was the governing body within Israel and Judaism. And they had tremendous authority. They actually had, in this case, the power of capital punishment. And he's before all of them now, and they've laid accusations against him. And for most of chapter 7, he's going to respond to those. But I just want us to see now the outcome, okay? So we'll start reading in verse 51. Peter makes this long defense that we'll talk about in a moment. And then he says in verse 51 of Acts 7 to the Sanhedrin, these 70 ruling elders, you stiff-necked people. Notice that Stephen is not... He's not afraid. Call it like it is. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. These are gnarly words. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Speaking of Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law and was, that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Oh my goodness, that is a barn burner right there. If you understand the Old Testament, you're familiar with the Old Testament, you see that there's a lot of phraseology, a lot of word choice there that is radical. That is just like the gnarliest thing you could say to a governing religious body within Judaism. This whole stiff neck thing, God uses that language a lot to talk about Israel in the Old Testament. This whole uncircumcised hearts and ears, talking about the ancestors and the prophets and all these things. I mean, Stephen is just laying it out right here. Now, the accusations against him, which we learned last week, were false. It said so in the text in Acts chapter 6, where that he had spoken negatively about both the temple and the law of Moses. Okay, that was the official accusation, that he had been speaking negatively about the temple and the law of Moses. And we talked about why within Judaism at that time that was worthy of capital punishment. That was like the serious offense, talk negatively about the temple and the law of Moses. So in chapter 7 now, when Stephen responds to the accusations, he uses the opportunity to talk about Jesus. Pause, think, listen. 
When he responds to the accusations that are coming against him, false ones, because he lived so much like Jesus, he takes the opportunity to talk about Jesus. In other words, what his long monologue here is not, is it is not a self-defense intended to get him acquitted. That would have been what I would have done. I would have said, no, oh, I didn't talk about the temple. I wasn't talking about Moses. And I would have gotten the best lawyer to represent me to get myself off of these charges and out of these charges. Wow. Maybe we learned something from Stephen. Stephen saw the truth about Jesus as being even more important than his own well-being. Those aren't easy words. Don't play games. Stephen saw the truth about Jesus as being more important than his own well-being. So in response, he takes the opportunity to try to convince them once again about who Jesus is rather than how unfair his situation was. Hear me? So he mentions, because the accusations were about Moses' law in the temple, he mentions in that response that you'll read in full later, that Moses himself had pointed to Jesus in the law, that Moses had talked about the coming of Jesus, and that God himself had said that worship would not be confined to the temple. That was a large part of the problem here, that worship would not be confined to the temple. You remember Jesus, when he talked to the woman of the well, alluded to these things. And Stephen's thrust in mentioning these things is to remind his audience, the representative body of Israel, that they had missed the mark on both Moses and what he was all about and the temple and what it is all about. That they had missed the mark on it. So he says in verse 39 to them, Our ancestors refused to obey him, speaking of Moses, and instead they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. He's trying to take his audience and their imagination back to how Israel really dealt with Moses under his his leadership. That They had rejected his leadership and they even wanted to go back to slavery. He's trying to remind them that, listen guys, you're missing the point about Jesus and it's not the first time that we, Israel, have missed the point. It's a humble plea toward them, these people whom God loves, even though we see them set up here as the antagonist or the foe. And then he says about the temple in his defense, so to speak. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. That's something that God said in the Old Testament when David was talking about building him a temple, which Solomon ultimately did. God said, yes, there will be a place where I will meet with you and you can worship, but that's not the ultimate place. That doesn't own my presence on earth. My love and my presence are much bigger than that. Again, he's trying to convince his accusers that historically they have often missed the mark of what God was trying to do. And so Stephen's conclusion is that they have also missed the mark about the Messiah. Again, a couple verses that we just read. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are uncircumcised. You're like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about how they missed all the prophets and their points. And they've even betrayed and murdered Jesus. And they haven't actually obeyed the law. Now, the religious leaders are radically offended by this. Look what it says in verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. You know how, like, bummed you have to be to actually gnash your teeth at somebody? When was the last time you gnashed your teeth at somebody? Don't tell anybody. It'll be embarrassing for you. But, like, it happens on occasion, but it's pretty extreme, right? Like, 
just, I know you can't see my teeth because of my mustache, but just actually gnashing teeth. Like this is real. These guys are perturbed. So much so, we know the end of the story. They kill Stephen. But there's one last thing before Stephen dies that he claims that causes them to ultimately rush upon him in their act of murder, to drag him outside and stone him. Stephen claims to see God's glory in the midst of this trial and that Jesus is central to it. Look what he says here in some of the subsequent verses. Uh, No, uh, 55 through 56, Reynold. Thank you. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is the next verse after it says they were gnashing his teeth at them. Remember in, uh, last week from the last chapter, we saw that Stephen's face was like an angel during this trial. Think how like, frustrated these guys are getting. Right? He's sitting there, he's looking like an angel. He gives them this whole long Bible study that is meant to remind them of the fact that they've often missed the point of what God is doing. And then when they're gnashing their teeth at him, he says, whoa, I see the glory of God and Jesus is central to it, standing at the right hand of God. In this moment, the glory of God was revealed to Stephen and filled his heart, mind, and imagination. And the the response was this. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Now, that was the straw that broke the camel's back that Stephen said, I see God's glory and Jesus standing in his right hand. Jesus is central to the glory of God. You know, the glory of God for Judaism was a really big deal. They use this word Chabad to speak about the glory of God. And it spoke about the weightiness of his presence. Right? When, when they would speak about it, and even in the very grammar and the word, it, they would say it, it was weighty. There was a certain weight to the glory of God. We see that as sort of evidential and literal when the temple was built and then God filled it with his glory. And what did all the ministers do? They all fell down, right? The weight to the glory of God. There was this weightiness to the glory of God. And the glory of God was everything to Israel. And it was meant to be, from their perspective, centered in the temple that, that Stephen is now sort of confronting their view of. And so for Stephen to invoke the glory of the God of Israel and then put Jesus in the middle of it was too much for them to bear. From their perspective, that was absolute blasphemy and they rush upon him and they kill him. Now, there is a subtext running through Stephen's speech and vision that will be helpful to many of us today. This week I was... Uh, with a friend, Pastor Al Abdullah, who is from Reality Boston, who's on sabbatical right now. I spent some time with him this week in the mountains, uh, helping him get started on his sabbatical and just spending some time together. And one morning, we were looking together at the story of the resurrection, the first Easter morning. It's dark, Sunday morning. Christ has been crucified. The disciples are, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? 
They're dismayed at what has happened. The women go to the, the, the tomb. Thank you, Von Ray. The women go to the tomb that first Easter morning in the dark to anoint the body, expecting to find Jesus dead. And when they get there, there's an earthquake that happens. A stone is rolled away, and there's an angel sitting on it. And we were just thinking about this text and listening to and looking at this text. And I imagined myself with the women that first Easter morning. I imagined myself going to the tomb in the dark with all those feelings of disappointment that it didn't seem like God had done what I thought God should be doing as it pertained to Jesus. And it didn't seem now that he was present since Jesus had been in the grave. And I imagined myself with all that disappointment walking to the grave that morning and then feeling the earthquake and seeing the stone rolled away and the angel there. And in my imagination, I fell down on my face. And in my imagination, all the weight was lifted off of my heart and my shoulders and my mind and my being. All the weight went away because a glorious morning had dawned. And suddenly in that text, I had realized that it was true that there was a power who was greater than me. That the weight of my life and the weight of my drama and the weight of the church and the weight of all my failures is not mine to bear, but I have a God who daily bears my burdens and he has risen in the person of Christ. Man, and that just began to set me free about this whole building thing. It's just been so weighty. And to be reminded that there's a stone that is rolled away and the tomb is empty and there is a power far greater than myself. Because as elders, we felt like we're just the greatest power in this thing. Where's God? And we're just having to wrangle it and work it and there's nobody to help and we just, we just feel like it's, it's up to us. But the resurrection reminded me that there is a greater power than ourselves and he loves us. And it reminded me of the fact that we're talking about that God is always present and active in our lives. And that's hard to remember because life is hard sometimes. It's not just hard for us. Life was hard for Abraham too. Stephen talks about that at the beginning of the chapter. That Abraham was called out of the place that he lived and promised another place. He was called to leave all of his friends and everything and everyone that he knew and go to this place that God did not disclose to him yet. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know how it would happen. But Stephen reminds his audience that God was present and active in the ambiguity of his call and in the physical impossibility of it. It was ambiguous. God just said, go. And he went and he obeyed God. He didn't know exactly where he was going. And there was a physical impossibility to it because God said, I will bring a nation forth from you. And that nation was Israel. And he said, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars are. But his wife was barren and he had no children. But God would fulfill his promise. And he goes on to say, Stephen does it eventually, Abraham held Isaac, the promised son. And though it was many years of wondering and wandering and difficulty and struggle, there came a moment where he felt the promise. He held the promise in his hands. And Stephen is reminding us that God is faithful and he's always working even when it doesn't feel like he is. And after Abraham, he goes on to talk about Joseph. You'll read it in its entirety later. Joseph was rejected by those who were supposed to love and protect him. 
his brothers, the patriarchs. Joseph was rejected by those who were supposed to love and protect him. And they sold him into slavery. But God was present and active in his rejection and his slavery. The text says in Acts 7, 9 through 10, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Maybe you can imagine the pain, the hurt, the shame of his rejection by those who were meant to love and protect him. God was with him even in those dark circumstances. And I, I want you to see from the text that God did something that Joseph never could have imagined. Oh, I'm preaching to myself now. God did something that Joseph never could have imagined. Well, he did. He had a dream about it, but he didn't know it was Egypt and that he would become the prince of Egypt. God was with him and saved him out of all his troubles. And then Stephen goes on to talk about Moses. You'll read the story and hopefully even Exodus in its entirety entirety later, but God called Moses and Moses failed miserably in his attempt to obey God. Remember the first time he showed up as a supposed deliverer and he killed the Egyptian and then he was rejected by the Egyptians and then he had to flee into the wilderness and there he was for 40 years. He thought he had a call and a gift and an anointing by God. He endeavored to walk in it and he failed miserably. And for the next 40 years, he was just, it seemed, out of play. Man, sometimes that's a hard, cold truth of life. He felt like he was just out of play because of his previous failure. But God was not done with him. God was present and active even in his failures. And at the right time, in the right way, God showed up in the burning bush. And he recommissioned the call to Moses. He reissued the call to Moses. God was present and active even in his failures and sent him back as a great deliverer of Egypt. And then after talking about Moses, God talks about Israel. They were promised by God that they would be his people and would worship him. And yet for 400 years, they were enslaved by Egypt. And horribly so. Their children murdered there. And then they wandered in the wilderness. But God was present and active in their suffering and in their wandering. Verse 34, God speaking says, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. You know, sometimes it feels like God doesn't see us. In our suffering, we feel unseen, but God sees you, brother. God sees you, sister. God sees you. He sees the obstacles. He sees your suffering. He sees all of it. And he loves you. God is faithful to the very end. And Stephen, of course. You know, Stephen did everything right and was the right guy. And everything goes wrong for Stephen. Hey, dude. He was the right guy. He did everything right. He looked a lot like Jesus. 
and everything goes wrong for him. But the text tells us that just like the whole story of Israel, God was present and active in Stephen's difficult moment. Again, we'll just look at it in the Bible. It's not on the screen, verses 55 and 56. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know what God did for Stephen? He reminded him of the fact that the veil between heaven and earth is thin. It seems so thick to us sometimes. But it's actually thin. And the veil was just pulled back by the power of the Spirit for a moment. He was full of the Spirit and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus and he knew that just like Abraham, just like Moses, just like Jacob, just like Israel, I am not alone. God is with me. Jesus was present in his deepest place of pain. Oh God, please, please pull back the veil for some of us today. Make the veil between heaven and earth so thin for some of us today, God. We need to see your glory, God. Maybe like Abraham, you you don't know where you're going or how you'll get there or how you'll ever thrive there. That's really where we're at right now as a church with this building. Maybe like Joseph, you've been rejected by those who are supposed to love and protect you. Maybe on Father's Day, that's super real for you. Maybe like Moses, you feel like your best efforts for God have been great failures. I understand that. Maybe like Israel, you feel like your suffering and your wandering are unending and too long. And maybe like Stephen, you feel like your current trial will crush you. And it might. It's not a happy ending. I mean, he goes to heaven and everything. Awesome. But this friend, this brother, this co-servant in the church, this leader, this great man in the community dies an unjust, horrific death. But the text reminds us that God is present and active even in our crushing. How do we know? Because Jesus was crushed for us. And Isaiah 53 says it pleased the Lord to crush him for us. Jesus was crushed for us. And that is proof of God's never ending, always pursuing, forever faithful love. Now, whenever we feel that our crushing is too much, Jesus was crushed for us. Therefore, you are the beloved of God. And therefore, God is present with you in your pain and your wandering and your wondering. The question is simply for us, how will we respond to the promise that God is present and active and faithful? Maybe it helps us to sort of hear what sort of invitations God is giving us in those difficulties through the text. What is God's invitation to you in your current difficulty? Think about what you're faced with right now. What is God inviting you to discover? Maybe God is inviting you to hear what he says in a way you haven't heard it before. 
right? Remember verse 51, Stephen said to his opponents, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised, which means they're not sanctified unto the Lord. They're not set apart unto the Lord. They're not put in use for the work of the Lord or whatever the Lord wants to do in one's life. So maybe God's invitation to you and you're wandering right now is to hear something that he wants to say to you. How will you respond to that invitation? How will you circumcise your ears, so to speak, set them apart to hear what the Lord has to say? Maybe for you it's an invitation to obey. Remember what he said in the second part of verse 51 to his opponents, you're just like your ancestors, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's some space or place in which you're resisting the work of the Spirit in your life. In the midst of this trial or this challenge, and God's invitation to you is an invitation to obey in a new way. Will you hear that today? Will you respond? Maybe God's invitation to you and your difficulties is an invitation to rely upon him in a way you never have before. Right? In verse 55, it says that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. To be full of the Holy Spirit is to put our full dependence upon God. In the worst moment of his life, in the face of death, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Maybe God's invitation to you is to rely upon him and his resources and not yourself. And to seek him. Maybe it's an invitation to see. Stephen saw God's glory. You know, Stephen started his whole speech here by talking about God's glory. When he talked about Abraham, you'll read it later in full, in the very beginning of Acts 7, he says, and the glory of God, or excuse me, the God of glory called Abraham. His whole thing starts with the glory of God and it ends with the glory of God. Stephen's was an imagination that was full of the glory of God, formed clearly by scripture as he explains it all the way through. Stephen's heart and mind and imagination were full of the glory of God. Maybe the invitation to you is to see clearly the glory of God. That's what happened for me the other day when I imagined myself there at the empty tomb. I was reminded of the glorious risen Christ. It was an invitation for me to see so that that weight might be rolled off of me. And the reason that we can Hear, obey, rely, and see is because there's a bigger, wiser, stronger, better power who is Jesus and he loves us. And his finished work on the cross is the proof of his love and his resurrection from the dead is the proof of his power. You know, Stephen saw a risen Christ in his vision and he knew that he too would rise. It gave him hope. He knew that his crushing was an ultimate that his resurrection would be ultimate because Jesus was risen. Stephen's vision was proof of not only God's love and power, but his presence. The veil between heaven and earth was made thin. And his opponents, the Sanhedrin, were missing the story of God's activity and presence among them, and they simply didn't see it. There's an invitation today for you to see for you to lay hold of, by faith, God's active presence in your life now. So, you know, as we move into a time now of prayer and worship and waiting on the Lord and bowing before the Lord, I just want us to be 
trying to, with the help of the Holy Spirit, identify God's grace in our rough places. God, help us to see where you're present and active in our current difficulties. Help us to see it, Lord. I believe the Spirit will help you to see it. And when the Spirit helps you to see it, then thank God for it. Acknowledge it and thank God for it. Thank you, God, that you're present in this way, in that thing. It might not be all the ways that you're currently expecting or hoping him to be present, but acknowledge where he is present and know that he is far more present than you're able to see in the moment. And thank him for his presence there. And then respond to it. Of course, there's going to be ambiguity and difficulty, but he is with us. He's with you. So stick with him in the difficulty. The final warning is to not respond in fear like Israel did in one of their times of difficulty and ambiguity. Here's the final little passage we'll look at. This is a response from fear. This is when they were wandering in the wilderness, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. And they brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. There's the fear response. God hasn't done what I expect him to do. So we're going to do what we know how to do. Aaron, make us a God that we can see. Because we can't see this God and we don't know what's up with Mo on the mountain. Don't respond in fear. Respond in faith. This is why we have God's word. To remind us that God is always present and active in our circumstances. May you see that today by the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word. Thank you, Lord, for your encouragement to us today. Thank you that you sustain us, even in our crushing, as you did for Stephen. Please, Spirit, make these things real to this church today. May those who are suffering today experience your grace, your presence, your power. Would you bring hope to hopeless places? Would you open up a door of hope in the valley of trouble? Please, God, give us a vision of your glory. Lord, I would just ask as we worship you now that we would be really intentional and attentive to your glory and about your glory, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth and we would experience a little bit of your glory, that we would see Jesus exalted like Stephen saw Jesus exalted and that that vision would be bigger than the drama of our lives. That vision would be bigger than our disappointments. That vision would be bigger than our failures. Give us a vision of the glory of Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name.